0: Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This Sustainable Agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program, with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, this is Rich Myers with NCAT. In this episode, Martin Garena, a specialist with NCATS ATRA, Sustainable Agriculture Program, at NCATS Western Regional Office in Davis, California, talks with Amigo Bob, Bob Cantisano. Bob is a widely influential pioneer in California organic agriculture and is well known as the founding organizer of the annual Ecological Farming Conference, which will celebrate its 40th anniversary in 2020. It's one of the largest sustainable agriculture gatherings in the Western United States. Martin and Bob discuss the history of organic agriculture and what Bob sees as its challenges and opportunities going forward, including regulatory practices, labor challenges, and increased demand. Let's listen.
1: Hi, this is Martin Garena, um, Sustainable Ag Specialist with the National Center of Appropriate Technology. I'm in Davis, California with Amigo Bob Contesano. Amigo... um, is one of the original organic farmers, (laughs) pioneer of the organic farming movement, one of the founding organizers of the EcoFarm Conference, which is the largest sustainable ag conference in the western U.S. He also founded Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, being one of the first organic um, input suppliers for farmers. Also established Organic Ag Advisors, which is a consulting service um, for organics, probably the first one also, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, consulting with hundreds of farmers, uh, making the transition to sustainable and organic production. And currently, um, well, also founder and current director of the Felix Gillette. Close enough. Institute. <laughs> Thank you, Bob, for being here.
2: Oh, honor. I'm honored, Martine. Thanks for asking me.
1: Sure. So, going back 50 years, you know, you've witnessed the beginning of the organic movement. You're participating and practicing in the present. Where do you see organics in the future?
2: Ooh, the billion-dollar question. Well, you know there's been a huge growth I, I, this is my 50th year working in organics and i have done farming as you mentioned and a lot of other components to it and we were a microscopic phenomena in the 70s and 80s and it started to roll in the 90s and you know, in the 2000s it actually got traction um but it's still you know hugely small i mean depending on whose statistics you listen to it's one or two percent of the actual acreage farming in the United States. A little bit more in California. Um,
1: the income, is, though, for farm or the prices and the money generated has increased quite a bit.
2: Yes, the demand's there. The, 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 the consumer wants it, and the farmers will follow the demand. And the product, the production has not been adequate to the demand. There, there. That saying keeps the prices up, which encourages more farmers to either expand or new farmers to get into organic farming. And that's where I've made quite a bit of my living is helping conventional farmers convert to organic, mostly because they see a market niche. They also appreciate the environmental aspects as well. What's changed in the last three, four years is the demand now from the supermarkets and the mega processors is much, much greater. Previously, this was confined predominantly to natural food stores and co-ops and family uh, processing companies. Yeah. Now that's all changed. Yeah. Uh, they have
1: Walmart, Costco.
2: Yeah, exactly. The, the, the big guys are in it, uh, as well as the most of the family processing companies that have gotten bought in by the multinationals. So they, of course, ramp up the demand. And the, these people bought or corporations bought these businesses because they saw a market niche that they weren't in, but they want to grow them. That, you know that—that's the whole thing. Well, the, the primary limiter is the production. They can process till they're blue in the face, but if they don't have the product, they can't do that. And organic has a, you know, pretty significant set of limitations that you need to uh, achieve or requirements that you need to achieve, even a three-year transition time, et cetera, et cetera. So, because of this big growth or, or in demand, now it's changed. Although we've always had some larger and very large organic farms, now almost every conventional operation worth its weight is converting some or much of their land to organic to meet the demand. That's new. I mean, there have always been some, you know, the big players like a Cal Organic and such, but, which by the way, I helped them when they had a half acre, now they got, I heard, 50,000 acres organic. Um, but those are those are predominantly just a few, a handful of these bigger players in the organic produce or the organic grains. Now, because of the demand, processors or General Mills or whoever are looking for large volume semi loads and, and train loads of product, and especially the growth in animals, huge growth, and, and, and it takes a lot of feed to feed animals, unless they're on pasture. But typically, that's not the case, and. So now, what's happening is a lot of conventional operations are now split operations and they're converting more and more of their land organic. And that's created a kind of a difficult situation in some ways um, because they need to get a market share and they are not as uh, careful about how they, they produce to keep. Uh, supply and demand in balance and so they tend to overproduce, and then the price drops and that doesn't just affect them it affects everybody I'm sorry let me get my specs on oh yeah so yeah that so in the future um, I see big growth you know that the Millennials and, and younger and older are all interested in more. They want more organic, they're, they're more interested in food than ever. You know, when I started this, nobody was interested in talking food. Now everybody's got an opinion, which is pretty amazing. And that's great. Uh, a lot of it's misinformed, but okay, at least you got an opinion. And that demand is increasing, you know, farmers markets, you know, the people want to buy the food, grocery stores, they want to buy the food, processes want to buy the food. So I see nothing but growth. Now, can it be profitable? I think is the biggest uh, unknown in the future, because the growth can be there. We can grow more product, but can we actually make enough money to keep people sustained? That's a big question
1: mark. Great. So, considering all these players coming in to the market, how do you see the efficacy of certification, in particular the? NOP right
2: now that clearly is a mixed bag um, you know I, I got certified first in 1975 and it was a two-page form a $25 fee a visit by a, a local organic farmer and a handshake now it's hundreds of pages of documentation uh, hundreds or thousands of dollars of expense and an inspection by an independent paid inspector We're the most organics the most regulated form of agriculture it's like no doubt about it you can look at the rest of agriculture and it's got some regulation and then you take that regulation and you add on to it with organic the, the national organic program run by the USDA is clearly a mixed bag they are charged with the responsibility of managing and enforcing that law that was written back in I think originally in the 90s and then finally got into play in the 2000s and they do, they, they do a, I'll be polite and say, less than adequate job and so right now it's in many ways it's easy to still cheat, you know, we, people only get inspected generally once a year, you get notified in advance. Well, a certification kind of thing notifies you in advance. The health department shows up and they <laughs> want to see what you're doing. So, you know, and I've witnessed it. I've witnessed farms that have successfully gotten certified and they weren't fully, you know, uh, following the rules. So there's that phenomenon goes on. We don't do much testing, so we don't really are able to validate whether what's being said is in fact true. I think the vast majority of organic producers are legit. I, I don't want to imply otherwise, but there are those that are not. And we have this whole problem that's been going on with imported fake organic grain, which is because of this gigantic demand for organic grain for chickens predominantly. And they just, you know, some, I mean, train, I mean, what we call shiploads of fake organic grain with fake certificates. From, going, from abroad, from abroad, yeah. that's going on. Uh, There's is the issue right now with the whole issue with KFOs uh, still being allowed in some form in organics, uh, dairies particularly, and also chickens that aren't really allowed onto pasture. Right. Um, those need to be those. Those rules were written, but they're not being enforced. And, so,
1: so do you see uh, an alternate certification process? You know, uh, not anything of, yet. It's
2: yeah. you know any quote better there are others you know well time will tell whether any of those turn out to be actually better because they're all based on that on that same program to start with it's their add-ons you can find out if those turn none of those people have gotten certified yet so we don't really know what that really looks like i'm hoping it's better
1: what about the, the local component
2: Well, that actually drives a lot of this consumption, particularly for smaller farms. You know, I I mean, small farms are not going to sell to uh, Costco. This is not going to happen or Safeway. So their market is the local consumer. It's the farmers markets. It's the farm stand. It's selling to the natural food stores. That's going to continue to increase. And the big players don't really pay much attention to that market. So that's that's the niche for the smaller farm, both now and in the future. Is servicing the local demand and the and the family scale demand, and and that's going to grow, uh, you know. And there are going to be some crossovers sometimes, but generally speaking, that's the the demand of the smaller producer.
1: Yeah. So you, you mentioned the imports, and and specifically, how do you think uh, imports from Mexico, in particular, are going to affect um, you know organic? Yeah, boy, this is a, this
2: is a big problem. I, I don't mean I actually did a lot of work in Mexico. I love Mexican farmers and farm workers. I, I'm really glad that there's now an organic market because it's raised the income level for both the farmers and the farm workers. There, standard of living's better. There's a lot of improvements. You and I have been working on some of those projects, and you see what's changed. And it's you know we have this impression that it's just all disaster in Mexico, and there is a lot of that. But it's now gotten a lot better. And partly because these people want to be able to sell the United States and be able to get the certifications, both not just organic, but other types of certification, to make sure that they're in compliance with what's desired here. The challenge with that is that the cost of labor is so much less in Mexico that they're able to land this produce in the United States for a third to half the price of what people in California can grow it for because california has much higher labor land costs all the production costs lectures costs all that stuff's all more money so it's it's putting an extreme amount of pressure on the longtime organic growers uh not that they're intentionally trying to crash the market it just the mexicans can produce it cheaper and they're going to sell it cheaper because they need to sell it i don't now, now see a lot
1: that, of um u.s companies are farming are, are farming things. down there that's too right. that's yeah. right
2: and so yes yeah, not just Mexican farmers right. a lot of US farmers across the border I've worked for a bunch of those who are farming in both California, Arizona and in Mexico and they are again taking advantage predominantly of lower labor costs and seasonal differentiations yeah it's going to keep happening you know the demands there I mean Costco or Walmart wants to buy it cheaper I just try the other day they like you know not to, that was specifically about those two companies, but the, now the demand is to, to get organic down to the same price as conventional by the chain stores. It's, like, ridiculous. Yeah. That'll break every farmer in America, yeah. you know, because already the people farming conventional aren't making any money. So the organic people are actually making a living, but if, if there's no way, or I hope there's no way, that we actually get it down to where they're not, they're selling at the same price as conventional, that would be a disaster.
1: So we spoke about... Um you know products imported from mexico
2: china too well know.
1: china yeah that's you know further away but in particular let's talk about labor imported from mexico yes which is reduced cut back the farm workers that we have here locally are retiring and moving on to other jobs how do you see that impacting um uh, organic.
2: gosh, it's huge, not just organic, it's right. conventional, right. all scales, all crops, anything that's high labor, hand crops, are hugely impacted. I don't know a single farmer who hasn't told me in the last couple of years that they've got a reduced or, or very difficult farm or, uh, labor supply. The good news is the price for the farm workers, is go- the labor is going up. Yes. so There's a supply demand phenomenon there. And I've never seen that happen before. Now people are, hallelujah, farm workers are getting, you know, farmers are trying to keep them working year-round, giving them benefits, giving them vacation time so they don't lose them. So so basically,
1: they're professionalizing the labor that is highly skilled, is highly skilled. yes and at one time taken for granted because yes. there was so much of it available.
2: Yes, agreed. And and it's not going to become more available to, to any great degree. Right. And they are retiring, the older folks, and the kids aren't so interested because they want to go do jobs in the city. Right. It's a really difficult challenge. So i talked to farmers who are cutting back acreage or they're cutting back to high labor crops, you know, or stuff doesn't get picked. You know, and, and even in, you know, like wine grapes, Napa Valley, you know, they're paying the highest wages... I know people paying eighteen to twenty five dollars an hour. It's is a pretty good wage. Yeah. they can't find enough employees. Yeah. You know it, it, I mean, they're all complaining. So yeah, this is it's to the benefit of the farm workers who are there. I still think we need to come up with a better immigration policy so that we actually get some people from Mexico or Guatemala to come here and work. So what
1: about that H-2A visa program? Yeah,
2: I mean, it's an improvement, but it's
1: expensive, and it's
2: challenging, and they've got to provide housing. You know, and housing in California is extremely difficult to get past farm worker housing, hugely expensive and, and, and difficult. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, today, if you're going to go build farm worker housing, you are going to spend a fortune, you know, almost as much as you'd pay for, you know, regular housing. And, and then on top of that, then they cram too many people into those houses because it was so expensive to do it. But H two A is at least an improvement, you know. But they need to make it more realistic.
1: Well, there's also the the, the criticism, the fact that you know you that you have the labor here for a short time, then you have to send it back, yep. and then you get a new crop of uh, workers that m- maybe once you trained uh, a worker on how to prune or how to you know harvest certain crops. Then you got to start over again. Yeah, that's
2: a really good point, and and that's a skill set that you don't necessarily learn all about and get really good at in one season, because some of these, many of these jobs, you only do them for a week or two or three at a time, and then you're not back to that for another year. Yeah, well, you know, the many people I know, farmers, are pride themselves on how long X Y Z person has worked for them, and they, you know, oh, this guy's work or woman's worked for me for twenty two years, twenty years. Well, they love that relationship. The farm worker loves it, and the farmer loves it. And, and, and both of them are benefiting. So, yeah, you know, when you flip them back and forth with an H-2A, I mean, well, we ought to change it so that the same people could come back every year. Yeah. And then they, you'd have a skilled wet labor force. You wouldn't be training them from the ground up. And at the end of the season, they'd go home. But, but you know, we haven't—our society has still failed to deal with labor—immigration, yeah. rather. Yeah. Just We have not come up with a solution to that. Right. Which is critical,
1: and it doesn't look like we're going to. No, I don't think them. so. No, we're
2: just rhetoric at this point.
1: So right now, especially here in California, uh, California Farm Food and Ag has this uh, Healthy Soils program, mm-hmm. a concept that you know, 40 years ago was being um, promoted by organic farmers, but it seemed that took 30 years for them to finally listen. Yeah. Why do you think they're finally paying attention?
2: oh the dollar let's start with that you know the state legislature awarded enough money from cdfa to actually go out and spend money and do this that's one two there's a traumatic amount of data about soil and water quality decline and erosion and all that related stuff how about the nitrate contamination in the groundwater all over the san joaquin or the salinas valley you know, yeah, you, you can turn a blind eye to that for decades, but eventually somebody's got to start paying attention. Right. So, yeah, they got the money to actually do something. It's nothing different than what we were doing 30, 40 years ago. It's, you know, but they make it sound like it's brand new <laughs> like and shiny. It is. <laughs> but it, it isn't. It's the same. It's basic. You know, it's better organic matter management yeah. and recycling of nutrients and yeah. composting and cover cropping, all the basic practices that go back hundreds <clears throat> of years.
1: So, so the, yeah. So the hippies are right.
2: Well, yeah, I do. I do believe that's true. I mean, the organic movement, with a few exceptions, was started by hippies. Yeah, there was a few others, but it was predominantly hippies. And you know, we had a we had an environmental ethic. We, economics weren't as critical at that point. You know, I'm a back to the land farmer. You know, and at that point, you know, we lived in communes and had few resources, but we also didn't think we needed much. But it's true. I think the hippies actually turned out to set the table for what today is now acceptable and. Normalized.
1: Yeah. Well, kind of related to soil health, and this is kind of a question I'm sure a lot of farmers, especially vegetable farmers, are interested in, is uh, nitrogen. Usually, you know, in an annual crop system, you put in, you disc down your cover crop, or you put down your compost, or you add your organic fertilizer, and you give your crop a start. Right. But when you're halfway through that season, the nitrogen kind of seems to, uh, you know, deplete itself. Sure. Um, what advice would you give organic farmers as far as supplementing that vital nutrient through um, the end to extend the, the, the life of the crop?
2: Well, the first thing, which isn't done often enough on organic or conventional, is to actually monitor the status of the crop. You know, we might have a soil test at the beginning of the year. We make a decision about what we're going to fertilize with and then plant the crop and then watch until it runs out of gas, typically in an organic system. So, petiole tests, leaf analysis tests, uh, is the standard technique. Also, the nitrate meters, these little portable nitrate meters, are phenomenal. They tell you exactly how much nitrogen the plant's got and whether it needs more. A refractometer also gives you an indication of the soluble solids in the plant. So I think regular monitoring is, is a starting spot. Oh, okay, we can see it's going to run out of gas. Also, <clears throat> we do now have a pretty good idea of the expected field life of how long a material is going to last. Um, you know, and so, you know, you know feather meal is going to last 90 to 120 days. If you've got a crop that's longer than that, you're going to have to expect someplace to supplement it.
1: So, so let's say th- I'm, so I am running out. Yeah, so what doing. do we do
2: next? Okay, yeah. it depends on the crop. Uh, you know, if it's a perennial crop, we're going to have to do something that's something that the water's going to activate. So it could be a dry material like feather meal or blood meal or uh, fish or a liquid fish, a fertigation system. Uh, I like these digested materials that are out there now that are 3 to 4% nitrogen, but they're real biologically active. But you can't catch up. You, you, you need to be doing it before the problem is apparent uh, because there's not enough, well, I should say it differently, you can catch up, but it will cost so much money you wouldn't do it if you're behind the eight ball. So, ferti- yeah. fer, uh, you know, light, what's the right term, fertigation uh, yeah. techniques, yeah. Uh, supplementing on an ongoing basis. In, uh, drip in vegetables, you know, you can fertigate pretty easily or side dress or top dress once the crop's in the ground. Uh, more common these days is fertigation simply because it's pretty easy to apply it but again you can't afford to catch up you got to do this as a preventative maintenance kind of a thing and that's why I like the nitrate meter because it's saying hey the nitrogen starts to dip oh okay we're kind of running out of the stuff let's start adding something side dress or top dress or, or fertigate
1: yeah. well we mentioned um, the age of, well, the number of farmers are, you know, declining, and, um, you know, you spoke about the future of organics, but here in California, for example, and I'm sure in other places, you know, with the high land, um, land prices, um, the hard work involved in, in, in farming and um, organic farming, the low wage or pay that normally you get. How do you go about enticing young people to do this and uh, farm?
2: Well, it's a good question. I think the first thing that someone has any inkling of uh, interest is an internship or an apprenticeship. That way you could at least get a real world sense of the kind of effort it takes. And if it's a decent farm at all, you'll be able to learn about the bookkeeping and the economics and you you can pick the farmer's brains. Uh, and many farmers are really open to telling pretty much anything they're asked. Yeah. And some of them even have really, you know, courses, you know, or, or yeah. some version of it. Um, so I think if someone's interested, for, you know, agriculture looks enticing, well, get out there for a couple of seasons, work on a couple of different kinds of farms, you know, scale or crops, something where you go, oh, okay, I kind of like this more than that, or I like to do this, then get a job on a farm. The next thing is actually get employed. So that you're not carrying the entire burden, you're you're t- you're doing a job for the farmer or farmers, uh, and meanwhile you get to increase your skill set, and you're able to observe and ask more questions and meet typically Hispanic people who are awesome farmer work farm workers and farmers, I, you know, and learn Spanish because it's really valuable in California. Um, I wish I was better at it, and it. I mean, there's just this incredible amount of nuggets of information in the farm worker community, and they're almost never asked. It's, it's kind of really sad, you know. But anyway, so I would learn there, and then I would get the skill sets that are not necessarily taught on the farm. Do you know how to change a tire? I mean, that's a rhetorical, but you need to know all. To, to be a farmer these days, you got to be a farmer, you got to be a mechanic, you gotta know, have to know plumbing, you have to know basic carpentry, you have to know all these different things as well as, oh, how do I plant a broccoli plant? And so the more diverse and rounded education you get, the better. And and then step into it on a small scale, have at least your partner or somebody have an outside job. So you've got an income coming in while you're learning because you're going to make some mistakes and you have to learn to market and you have to learn the to mar- marketing. And then eventually that can change and you could become, everybody could become full-time if that's what you desire. But you need to take, as they say, baby steps and then expand upon that as you learn how to get good at what you're growing and who your audience is. And as a person told me this in 1972, they said, hey, Bob, you know, anybody can grow it. Only a few people can make money at it. And at the time, I thought that was rhetoric. But you know what? It's really true. You know, and that's actually his son and grandsons are farming that today, and they're really successful because they're really good marketers. It, it, I, I mean, yes, they're good farmers too, but they really know their market. Yeah. So that's, you know, get to know your market. Yeah. You know, find out who your audience is. Be able
1: to sell what you grow.
2: Yeah, and, and at a good price. Right. You know, get a, get a good premium for yeah. it.
1: Well, I don't know if that's answered my last question, but advice you would give to a farmer or a, yeah let's say a conventional farmer that's looking going to organics or a young farmer that's looking into going into farming in general
2: mm-hmm. <clears throat> well one thing is don't don't bet the entire bank you know especially if you've been farming on a conventional scale and you're going to try organic try it on a small area you know enough to where you're paying attention you know if you do a quarter acre you're not going to pay a good attention so it's got to be a scale that something where you're Make it important to you, but also if you make mistakes, it doesn't compromise your success or your staying in business. Uh, for beginning farmers, yeah, the same thing. Start small; you can always expand. Just having lots of acreage doesn't necessarily make it pay. Um, and then you know, learn uh, you know the resources. You know, it's interesting, I I live in a community with a bunch of young farmers and I offered my advice for free and I've been making my living as a farm advisor for decades. Kids (laughs) never show up to ask the questions. I'm like, come on, you guys, I I worked at 870 farms now, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres for 40 plus years, I think I got a couple things I could share with you. They all are. They're young and brash, and they're like, yeah, "I know what to do," you know. And I get that. I was that way, and you were that way too. You yeah, know, when yeah. you were twenty, you thought you knew yeah. everything. But still, I, some of my best, best ever information came from these people who were seventies and eighties when I was a sprout. Yeah, and they got me steered in the right direction. So don't be afraid to ask people for advice, because usually, almost everyone at Farmer wants to give it. It, it, it ad nauseam they'd be stoked because oh, yeah. almost nobody ever asks them so and then go to conferences go meet people that are doing what you're doing you know because that's it's like especially like transitional or conventional growers they need to go meet the organic farmers and learn from them because that's most of what we know has been transferred one to one I mean Atch has been great but it's got its limitations and you know you, you, there's not a whole lot of resources to learn this stuff so you learn a lot of time from another farmer well, then go meet those farmers, you know, and stop. There's a cover crop growing and go talk to that guy or gal and say, What are you doing? You know, and, and they'll almost universally share it. I mean, there's very, very, very few people who are protective and secretive in agriculture. Yeah they'd like to talk about what they're
1: doing it seems that i've worked for for those Have you? <laughs> do you want to share anything when we'll oh yeah oh, no, 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 no. yeah
2: well that, that was an exception <laughs> to the rule. you're right there were there are a few that are secretive but but i would say in general most people are i mean I'm not going to give you every single detail yeah, but yeah. they're going to get you going in the right. right direction I'm sure yeah I totally think so
1: well, great. Any parting comments or words? Well, one more thing I was going to say is, you yeah. know,
2: if you're interested in agriculture, you don't necessarily have to be a farmer. I came up with a list of almost 140 jobs oh, yes. that are ag-related yeah. that aren't farming. Right. But but we need young people in all of these yes. jobs, careers, whatever you want to call them. Plant
1: pathologists, yeah. soil scientists hydrologists. Exactly. goes on and on and on. You know, fertilizer yeah.
2: manufacturers. I mean, there's yeah, this is yeah. huge amount. So even maybe maybe the labor and the hot sun is your thing for farming but we need you on these other areas and those young farmers need that support because that's actually their peer group they like to listen to me as a geezer but they're going <laughs> to listen to those young people a lot more so yeah I would urge more people to realize it doesn't you don't have to be a farmer in order to be beneficial in this whole thing we have a huge we got billions of people to feed you know and and how are we going to do that? Well, it takes more people to actually accomplish that. So don't be afraid to jump in. Um, and yeah, this isn't the most economically re- rewarding career, but my gosh, it's one of the most rewarding, spiritually heartfelt. I mean, every farmer I know, you know, yeah. does this because they love it, you know, yes. and, and it's, and, oh, the other thing is it's really hard to do this, which challenges people. It, it It's not rote. You're actually, oh, Oh, I got to figure this out. And then sometimes you do and you're like, Oh, okay. I succeeded at this. So this, so you get to get up every morning and go, I wonder how I'm going to pull this off today. So no dull, no dull days, life goes on. And yeah, I, I think anybody can get into agriculture, but yeah, you're going to have to lease a piece of ground. No, you're not going to own it right off the, the bat unless you know, your family helped you out. But still you can start small. There's still plenty of places to lease and start from there.
1: Very good. Thanks, Martin. Thank you, Bob. Well, my pleasure.
0: pleasure. Thanks for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Depending on the platform you're listening on, be sure to rate us and leave a reviewer comment. You can contact Martin Garena directly via email at marting at ncat.org. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-G at ncat.org. And please call ATRA with any and all of your sustainable agriculture questions at 800-346-9140 or email us at askanag Our two dozen specialists can help you with a vast array of topics, everything from farm planning to pest management, from produce to livestock and soils to aquaculture. You can get in touch with them and find our other extensive and free sustainable agriculture publications, webinars, videos, podcasts, and other resources at ATRA's website, www.atra.ncat.org. That's www.attra.ncat.org. We'll catch you next week. And until then, keep on farming.